Welcome to The Voice of Insurance. I'm Mark Gagan. One of the perks of this job is introducing you to some of the people that I've known for many years. I first met this episode's interviewee in the queue for a Latin American treaty underwriter back in 1993, and have been interviewing him as an insurance journalist since 2005. It probably shows in this encounter. Jason Howard of Beach is a great person to talk to. He has had a long career as a business leader, and more importantly, he's a big personality who always says exactly what he thinks, even if this occasionally gets him into hot water. Here, of course, we talk about COVID-19 and how the June renewals are going to be crucial, but we have a long discussion about the crunch in the casualty market as well. We also talk about the future for independent distribution in the post-MMC JLT Aon Willis environment and the best bits of the Future at Lloyd's reform programme. So if you want strong, direct views on the state of the market, look no further. Before we get started, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. What's happening with COVID-19? How are customers reacting and how, how are the markets reacting? First of April news, they came a little bit close on the heels of the outbreak of the pandemic for reinsurers uh, to make a concerted effort implying uh, exclusions across the board. So I think specifically on casualty, what we found when we were in the process of renewing contracts was reinsurers were trying to understand how their clients would be impacted by COVID-19 and how they were going to deal with that on the front end of it and generally trying to follow along for that. So, you know, there was discussion about about trying to add exclusions, but I guess we were able to hold off uh, and trying to push the fact that there was get a better sense of the impact and, and where the exposure is first and then put some exclusionary language around that later if applicable. So I think probably what's going to be really interesting to see what happens in the upcoming renewals. So let's see what happens in Florida, the 1st of June, the 6-1 renewals. And then obviously you've got a lot of renewals at the 1st of July as well. And we'll see what happens then. And that gives the market a little bit more time to sort of more put more of a concerted, coordinated response together. Around a property focus renewal like Florida, is it, it's going to be around business interruption language within in those original policies and, and then how that goes back to back for the reinsurers? Exactly. So I think there are obviously a number of classes that are going to be affected and should be affected in something like this, whether it's you know, event cancellation or what have you. But when it comes to business interruption in property policies, which at the moment the carriers wouldn't believe they were giving cover for this kind of an event because there's no material damage element to it, then one needs to make sure that one is covering what one's intending to cover and pricing for what one's covering. And I think that's where the conversation needs to be. And for the reinsurers, they need, they're going to want to have some kind of understanding that if they're not charging for this to be covered, it's not going to flow through to their treaties at the end of the day. So you're saying that that knee-jerk reaction to try and bring in things like total communicable disease exclusions have not been successful so far. They've been more of a wait and see. You've been able to bat them away until there's more time. On the treaties that we've renewed, yes. I can't speak for all the other renewals that are out there. And I and we were probably more focused on casualty renewals at the 1st of April than property renewals. So for our casualty renewals, we battered them back. You're active in, in, in the wholesale sector and, and obviously you're trying to really build your capabilities in, in, in that world. On wholesale, an excess casualty 
Are you seeing much activity? We've, we've seen reports of withdrawals of capacity, particularly for excess casualty around the healthcare sector, fairly understandably. We have a book, I mean, as you say, we're, we're building our, our wholesale capabilities to come and talk about that later. But healthcare is one of those areas that we do have capabilities in. And we've got business there, which we put on the books over the last couple of years and going to come up and renew. And it's, it's a very interesting area, I mean, particularly for the U.S., and the class already had its challenges from a sort of pricing perspective. Clearly, this is one of the areas that is going to be most affected by the pandemic. And I think certain subclasses like nursing homes are going to struggle for capacity. Uh, and there's been some withdrawals of, of some, some people from the market and some people saying that only right with full exclusion. So definitely going to be a minefield. We're going to have to help our clients you know, navigate the way through it. But the market will find a solution. It usually always does. But do you think, are there pockets of capacity that are willing to step forward, obviously at a price, one presumes, at this time? Yeah, I think what you usually find in these situations is you find the people who don't want to do it first because they come out and say, we're not going to do it anymore or we're going to do it on a very limited basis. So it's a question of then going and finding those that still remain in the market and working out what needs to happen for them to bring their capacity to the, to the fore. Back in reinsurance, around this sort of time, have you seen any kind of increase in demand for capital relief style reinsurance transactions uh, since this crisis has kicked off? And obviously, we've had those potential mark to market losses. Actually, certainly they will be mark to market losses for Q1. And so we'll have a notional decrease in capital in the industry. And again, I think it's all very new, isn't it? People are trying to understand what the implications of this are going to be on their companies. Clearly, the asset side of their balance sheets have been hit, have been compromised. So therefore, it stands to reason that if you've got some volatility on the asset side of your balance sheet, you might like to uh, take some measures to protect the liability side of the balance sheet. Clearly, reinsurance is a good tool for managing that. So I think we will see, I personally think we'll see more demand for reinsurance. I think what you're going to see, though, however, is that it's going to see premium volumes potentially dropping off as they flow through treaties and flow through insurance companies' books. So you might see an increase in price. And you might see an increase in some transactions, but then I think you'll see drop off in others. So it's going to be, a, it's very difficult to say exactly what's going to happen right now. But certainly we're talking to all of our clients about what else can we do to them to help them manage the situation. And as you would imagine, we've got some fairly innovative products, which we are talking to clients about, which we think help manage that situation well. It, it's still quite early. I think what you're also seeing is a lot of, a lot of people trying to get rid of problems on back years as well through ECs and LPTs and what have you, so just trying to clear the books a bit. And that's been exacerbated by this situation too. Stephen Catlin has said that uh, he feels that some of the impact of this is going to be bigger than 9-11. I mean, does your gut say the similar, you know, you, you were working around long before 9-11, you've been through major crises, the global financial crisis as well. Do, what does this feel like? I think where there is a parallel, for, there's a few parallels with 9-11. I don't necessarily think it's all doom and gloom. I think out of this, what you'll see is some people will, and I'm not just talking about insurance companies, but I'm talking about companies generally successful, you know, thoughtful entrepreneurial ones will survive and others will not survive. But the parallels with 9-11, I think there are a few. First of all, this is an event that the industry didn't really see coming and it's come and they have to work out on the hoof how to deal with it. Secondly, you had a peril in 9-11 terror, which really wasn't properly covered by the market. And the market had to find solutions for that, and, and it did. And I think you'll find that the same thing will happen here. We actually were trying to sell some pandemic covers a few years back after the, the original SARS outbreak, and they weren't really taken up. I think you'll find there'll be a lot more interest and demand for these kind of products going forward. And some very entrepreneurial people know that already thinking of solutions. Some of them will be sitting at beach and some will be sitting elsewhere. So, yes. For sure, the industry will turn its attention to how to deal with it. I think the issue is how does it deal with any exposure 
that it might have from it anyway that it didn't think it had. And clearly there's issues around legislators and and what have you might be trying to force the insurance industry to pay for claims that didn't think it was otherwise covering. So going forward, I think the industry will find a solution, whether it's in some way government backed, rather along the pool lines or TRIA, or whether it's a pure private solution, let's wait and see. But what's already happened and there's the going forward. But those are the parallels with 9-11. But it's not doom and gloom, I don't think. I think it'll take a while for the economy to recover. I mean, clearly there's going to be a recession for a period of time, and that is going to hit the industry because clearly you will see reduced premiums, you will see assets, bases compromised for a period of time. So it will have an effect, but the industry will find a way through it. How's it been operationally at Beach, you know, working from home? Well, it's an interesting one, but I think everyone's kind of taken to it quite well. I wouldn't say we were completely prepared for homeworking. And within six days, we had 200 plus people in seven different locations, all working from home fairly faultlessly. Great job done by our IT guys who deserve a medal and they'll get one. So, yeah, I think it's sort of business as usual. And, and it was just before the, the first of April renewals. We didn't miss a beat on that. I think maybe the market missed a day or two as it was trying to transition everybody to work from home. But we were able to renew all of our uh, treaties in time and some down to the wire. But uh, it was kind of business as usual from that perspective. I think probably a couple of new things which we were working on. We managed to do a few, but maybe a couple were sort of postponed till 1st of May. And, uh, you know, we're working on those now. But pretty much I would say it was it's the new normal for the moment anyway. Before all this broke up, we had a really, really interesting uh, marketplace anyway. So what's going on in the global wholesale marketplace and how's uh, Beach manoeuvring itself? Obviously, you know, it's, well, this could be quite a big question. You know, we've had broker consolidation right at the top and announcement of even bigger broker consolidation, whether the top four in the world will become the top two. How's that playing for you? And at the same time, where we had a hardening market pretty much across the board. Again, how's that playing into your strategy? Obviously, you had a very expansive strategy anyway, even before the MMC JLT acquisition was announced. So that's a very long question, but I just want to sort of do something kind of all-encompassing about where Beach is positioning itself in this in this very sure. changing market. Sure. I mean, the surprise is quite how quickly things are changing. I mean, if you'd said to me five years ago, the big four to give JLT a stick in that group would now be the big two. And I thought you were absolutely crazy. But this seems to be the reality of our world come next year. And uh, provided there are no regulatory surprises, of course. Beach, you know, we, we became part of Actual back in the first quarter of 2018. And um, that was the time when we began to work on a wholesale special lines insurance strategy. To that date, we'd been I guess, almost exclusively reinsurance broking focused. But we saw an opportunity in the wholesale space. It was very turbulent. There was a lot of M&A, as you alluded to. There was private equity looking to get into the into that space. Long-standing players that had been bought, like Miller's, Price Forbes, and others were up for sale. Tizer's, RFIB, subsidy both have sort of disappeared into other areas. And our thesis was pretty simple. We thought, well, some of the senior management in those companies were doing very, out of the, very well out of the deals. What about the client guys who manage portfolios of business and maintain longstanding, valuable relationships? And they just suddenly find the rug has been taken from under them. I would imagine that we imagined at the time that they were looking for long-term, stable home to bring their relationships to a platform that provided them with what they needed to service their clients. And we thought, here we have Acrisure, which is privately owned by hundreds of, of Acrisure employees, no majority shareholders looking to take cash out, out of the company. We thought that's got to be really appealing to these guys. So, you know, of course, what we needed to do was to find the right leadership to kick it off. And we were very, very lucky to meet John Sutton and Simon Haggis, who brought 
endless experience of running businesses in the London wholesale market to bear. And, you know, managed to persuade them to come along and, and start the project with us. And over two years, we built a team that's got expertise in a variety of classes. So healthcare, MedMal, professional lines, cyber, commercial auto property, just to name a few, and continue to build that out. And as we find more talent, we'll bring them on board, hopefully, with what we're offering. I think the icing on the cake as well for these new colleagues who've joined is that they now have access to a distribution network in the US of several thousand new friends who sit in the 250 plus agencies that make up the actual family. So couldn't be more delighted about how it's panning out at the moment. Plenty of more to go. But clearly, the most recent announcement of, of the acquisition of Willis by Aon further gives us opportunities in that space as well. So everything that's going on is playing towards our strategy. We're very pleased to have started it. I think it will continue to develop. Obviously, you started out known as a very as a boutique, we could say, or high-end reinsurance broker. With Aon and Willis and, and JLT MMC, do you have an even bigger opportunity to really forge ahead in reinsurance as well and, and sort of break out from being a boutique known as being a very you know high-end specialist reinsurance broker? To, do you think there's an opportunity to become a more generalist across-the-board reinsurance broker now that there are, if there are only going to be two really, really big ones? Do, do you have plenty of opportunity to stick all the scraps uh, that are falling off the table there and turn yourself into something um, much more sizable? Well, I think we'd always we'd like to continue to be thought of as high-end brokers. That's really what we want to be first and foremost. But yes, of course, there are going to be opportunities to bring talent on board who specialise in areas that we're perhaps not particularly involved in right now. I think there's, there's two aspects of that. One is sort of a product specialisation and the other is a territorial view. And, you know, we'll consider both those two things. I mean, as you know, we're very much more concentrated on the London market, Bermuda, North America, and then large global businesses. So we don't, we're not really very active in Latin America or Asia or what have you. And, and maybe there'll be opportunities coming out as a result of that that we'll have a look at. And I think always as actuaries in the process of building out its retail network internationally, and probably we'll, we'd look to follow in their footsteps to an extent. But when it comes to product specialization, yes, absolutely. I think there's some, there's some interesting talent out there that we recognize are very good at what they do. And I, as a general comment on, on what's going on, I personally don't think it's very good for the industry that you have such a concentration of intermediation in the, in the hands of two people. I mean, I'm sure they think it's a good thing, but I'm not sure it's a very good thing for the clients because they have a lot less choice. And I'm not sure it's a particularly good thing for the markets because they have so much of their distribution concentrated in, in the hands of two people. They are going to get squeezed. And so I don't think it's good for them. It is good for us independent brokers because it will give us opportunities to bring talent on board but we're not alone in thinking that way all our other competitors will be thinking exactly the same thing and no doubt there will be a fight for talent but i think in the case of willis aon clearly there's some personal relationships there i think which we'll be looking to use to uh, to tempt people to come and join us the other big thing obviously we're in the middle of a changing market but also reforming market and what's really been the principal driver behind the reforms has been obviously that the results haven't been great, but also results partly haven't been great because expenses have been at extreme cyclical high. We've got an industry target. John Neal, the CEO of Lloyd's Target, is to halve the industry expense ratio in the next 10 years. How do you think that's possible? Could we even do better than that? Or how do you think we're going to do that? I think the how is more interesting than the putting a number against it. I mean, I think, you know, you can put any kind of numbers against things. But at the end of the day, I think you've got to look at how the industry is set up. One of our principal objectives when we looked to, to build out our wholesale capitalism was not to bring more cost into the chain. I think that was very important. We felt 
frustration on behalf of our reinsurance company clients and our ultimate markets that so much of the original premium that was being charged at the front end was being sucked out before it reached the guy who was carrying the risk at the end. And, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult in the situation. You, know, you discuss this conversation with everybody who's participating in the chain, and they all fundamentally agree with you. But then, of course, when you point to their role in the chain, they say, well, we're not going to change anything. You know, we're fine as we are. I think we kind of we really felt this frustration as a, little, a small independent boutique broker like Beach. But there was little we could do about it. But, you know, now we're part of Acrisure. For us, the game's changed. We have this vast distribution network of retail clients in the U.S. and growing internationally. And at Beach, we've got access to specialized insurance and reinsurance capacity that want that risk. Um, Actual's fortunate, or whether it's probably a good strategy, that they haven't invested in all the, the pieces in between. So we can begin to transition business onto a lower frictional cost model. And we're working on that right now. It's not easy because the market's set up to promote the existing business model. Large existing players, they don't want to charge, they don't want to change what will cost them revenue and margin. But we're just beginning to focus on certain portfolios of business and develop white label products for our agency partners in the US to have access to for their clients. Less cost in the chain. You know, the idea is that the client gets a better product at a better price. And the so that's, it, gets it, it's that, premium. um, I know this is sort of suddenly becomes one of these red flag words of saying, so is that actually cutting out parts of the value chain? So you're, because of your ownership, you're able to go straight to a small broker in a region, a small retail broker. You can go directly from London to them without having a sort of intermediate regional wholesale broker having to deal it's, with that. It's not just London. It's it's wherever the end risk is ending up. I mean, it could be ending up in Zurich. It could be ending up in Europe. It doesn't really matter where it's ending up. What we need to be doing is to be able to bring the best product at the best price in the most efficient way possible to that end client. The first sort of finger pointed is always at the at the, at the wholesalers, right? And they're like, well, they, they need to come out of the chain. And I'm, I don't necessarily think that's true, right? I think we do a lot of work with wholesalers who bring excellent product and market and what have you and do it extremely efficiently. So I think the key thing about looking at who in the chain is going to get disintermediated in some way or another is who's providing value. And if someone just passing the risk through their books and not actually providing any value, that's probably where they, those people probably got to think about what their role is going forward. But anyone who's actually providing value, who's bringing something to it, whether it's bringing a client to bear or bringing a good product to bear, those people will have a, a role to play. They'll have to be efficient in how they do it, and they, they can't overcharge. But effectively, if you're not providing value, then you've got to question what your position in that whole chain is going to be. We're in the middle of the Lloyd blueprint, which is obviously part of all that reform that we're talking about with it, with expenses. Which parts of that are you most excited about? I mean, I think they're all they're all interesting. And I think Lloyd's have done a great job in putting the blueprint forward and clearly how they then execute on it. Everyone else is, is, is watching carefully. But I think directionally, they've really listened very well to the market and they've picked all the salient points out. So when I read the document, I was like, they clearly, as, as one of the market participants, we were interviewed a number of times and they seem to have picked up on pretty much everything we were talking about. But the two bits that stand out for me it's probably the lead follow initiative. Many of the cost issues that Lloyd's faces stem from push for diversification a few years back and far too many leaders entering different classes. This increased competition, but it didn't actually benefit the market in the long term. It's actually bad for the market in the long term. We feel needs to go back to that lead follow model, which made it what it is in the first place. You need a, a limited number of first class leaders in any given class supported by capital from a variety of sources on a low cost basis consortia however you want to set that up 
And, you know, we've been pushing for that for a while. And I think, you know, that, that sort of leads on to the next thing that I'm excited about, which I guess they've pushed out to a slightly second phase, which is this capital solution. Because I think it's a vital component of a healthy future for Lloyds is how they bring capital in. This whole sort of having to wait every year to bring capital in and the auctions. And all, it's quite a convoluted system. And I think actually Lloyds needs to be far braver about opening up the market to to investors, allowing metrics to be shared. Why is it that you can invest in, in any manner of funds or fund of funds in the financial market generally down to very specific stuff? Why can't we less, uh, let investors come into Lloyd's and invest much more easily in different syndicates, different lines of business, or even underwriting teams, you know, if that's appropriate? But it's all about data, and I think Lloyd's is doing a lot of work on data too. But I think those probably, I would say, the two, the, the lead follow initiative and, and, and the capital solution, the two bits that are most interest to me. But I think I'm watching all of it with interest. Time for a quick plug for the very first podcast on the Voice of Insurance was actually an interview with me with Sheila Cameron, who's the CEO of the LMA, all about lead follow, explaining a lot of the sort of myths about it. I was listening to it again the other day, and it's still very valid. It's something we recorded in early December, but actually these are eternal issues that, that aren't mm. going to change for a while. Obviously, it has been slightly parked while Lloyd's deals with uh, COVID-19 and everything else. But going into alternative capital structures, I've been observing, obviously, there's a, the phenomenon of insure tech has meant that there are a lot of risk exchanges and sort of reinsurance risk exchanges. They're really back in the market in quite a big way. And also, as you, as you said, sort of mentioned in those alternative potential alternative capital solutions at Lloyd's. Do you think their time has finally come? You know, I've been a, a I've, I've been a, obviously I've been an insurance and reinsurance broker, and I've also been a journalist writing about insurance and reinsurance for a very long time now. And there's a graveyard that is completely full of all sorts of innovative risk exchanges that didn't quite make it. Didn't, take up do you think the time has come now is it is it really time to you know would you be investing in one of these uh, new platforms it's interesting isn't it i mean you know i i like you've seen them sort of come and, and all go pretty much i can't think of resting exchanges within particularly successful in the past i think you know there's potentially a place for them certainly if there is going to be some kind of secondary trading or what have you i can understand the place for them i think the key thing is you've got to ask yourself what does the customer want and is the customer asking for this and if the customer is asking this, then there is going to be a role for it. But until I see great demand, you know, and the industry seems to do a reasonably good job of clearing its risk. The risk exchanges have got a place, I think, if they bring efficiency to the market. Let's wait and see. I'm, I'm not rushing in to invest feature actuals money in any risk exchanges anytime soon. But, you know, that's not to say we're, we're close to the idea if the right ones came along. Do you think the idea of indices and parametrics might be the way of getting that off the ground, particularly now when you've got a situation where, in fact, there was an early cover in the market around giving cover for hoteliers for pandemics. or Well, in fact, it was yeah. any cause, really. It was simply based on hotel occupancy index and then covering you for falls, stop loss type falls in the hotel occupancy index, which I presume would be almost any cause. Do you think those are the sort of things that we could be trading and therefore things that would be actively traded right now, particularly when there's a crisis, when capital needs to come to bear, one would presume this index would be nearly at rock bottom. And then you might have flushed out a few uh, optimists who would be willing to buy the index at a very low price and mm. take a risk. Yeah, I, I, do. I do. I think actually think of those kind of I think indices and, and parametric triggers do definitely have a, a big role. I think there are a number of risks that seem to be uninsurable on a UNL basis. And, you know, where you've got big databases and information that's publicly available, which allows the risk taker to assess price and, and price of risk on, on an index basis, then, yeah, it makes, makes good sense to do that. I mean, look at something like cyber insurance. I think you're going to see a huge explosion of cyber insurance demand. I mean, look, look at how we're all working right now. This was unthinkable six months ago. 
And so, you know, I think everyone will have experienced an increase of cyber attacks on their systems as malevolent parties try and take advantage of the situation. So I think there's going to be a huge uptick in cyber insurance. And will the industry be able to cope with all of that? Because it's very systemic. And I think being able to access capital through some kind of index or a parametric trigger of some description will definitely help provide more capacity to the market. So, yeah, we're believers in those things. We've worked with very early ILW brokers at Beach, you know, so we've supported them all along. Do you think, sorry to keep bringing up pandemic, but how systemic? We were worried before that cyber was the ultimately uh, very systemic risk with those electronic viruses. But of course, it turns out the real viruses are also. I mean, how systemic do you think and how insurable really is pandemic without state support? I think it's going to be tough to do it without some kind of state backstop. And that's where I alluded in the past on Ford's call, where I thought that some sort of solution may well ultimately have to be government backstopped until the industry gets its head around it. And, you know, as in the case of terror, it may be that certain parts will always remain government backstopped. But I think it is very, very much more systemic than anybody thought. For example, you know, we were talking about this BI business interruption problem in original insureds presumed that they're probably covered and then realised that they're not. But if all business interruption included pandemic globally, then we'd be talking about a solvency crisis in insurance, wouldn't we? One would presume rather than so it would be much more serious. And, and would we ever have been able to price for, the, for that amount of limit, which is all going to be wiped out simultaneously on a global basis where there is no mutual exclusivity whatsoever that we can rely on? Well, it's a bit of a new point now, isn't it? <laughs> because it didn't yeah. happen and it's not going to happen, right? So there's no way everyone's going to give unlimited pandemic cover on BI going forward. Uh, I think everyone now realises there is a huge risk. That's not possible. And the risk yeah. is not just, it's just impossible to cover. And the risk isn't just BI. I mean, the damage this pandemic is doing is far more widespread than that because it's it's really affecting the asset sides of the underwriting business, which in a, in a way that didn't happen, well, I guess it happened to an extent after 9-11, but bounced back probably more quickly, I think, than this will, because the recession is deeper and longer, because it's affecting so many more people. So it's different from that. It's deeper than that. And I think it's going to take longer to come out of than that. Jason, I want to uh, draw on your casualty experience and the prowess that, that you've got at, at Beach there. Before we were going into this crisis, we were talking about a casualty reserving shock or a casualty or at least a cyclical casualty reserving deficiency that we're going into after many years of surpluses and reserve releases. What's your view on that? Is that just people talking the market up? And then how's that been affected potentially by what's just happened in the last quarter? As ever in the situation, there's going to be winners and there's going to be losers. A blank statement of is there a casualty reserving shot coming isn't really applicable. I think unquestionably there's been some over-aggressive releasing of reserves by some insurers and reinsurers, and that's going to give them less flexibility as to how they react to future events such as COVID-19. But it's not true for everyone. I think there's going to be real difference about how people, their view to releasing reserves over the last few years. You can also argue that over the past 10 years, there has been an insufficiency of rate in, in casualty generally, and that's going to have an effect on results going forward, no question about it. And at the same time, there has been underlying inflation. Inflation's not been huge. But taken together, inflation, insufficiency of rates over 10 years, that's going to give a build up of problems for the casualty market and the way it dealt with its business in the 2010s. I mean, you've got other issues as well, such as social inflation, the ability for plaintiffs to influence jurors to find against insurers, even in sometimes very strange circumstances. And I guess this also adds to the effect. How we see that is there's going to be a big discrepancy between those that released reserves and those that didn't. But I wouldn't describe it as a shock. I think we could see it. So it's nothing like in in historical context, there's nothing like that, you know, the great shock of the mid 80s, which effectively set up XL and ACE on Bermuda. Nothing like nothing. No, 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 no. 
No, I don't think we see that happening. It's at just all. standard six. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. it's, 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 it's going to be quite pronounced because it's 10 years of it, but you're going to see winners and losers. I don't think it's not the general market. It's not a drying up of capacity for the general market by any means. I think also the other interesting part about this is pre COVID 19, you know, we could see there was a lot of rate being achieved, which was giving quite a lot of cause for hope. Uh, certainly when we were negotiating renewals, discussing with reinsurers, clearly we were trying to emphasize the future and the rate that was coming and the fact that it's looking rosy and it has done for some time. And whilst they're not hiding what's happening with the back of deterioration, but saying, well, you know, that's happened, but you need to be looking forward. And I think one thing's for sure, it's certainly driven plenty of legacy transactions that I, I referenced before. And, you know, people just trying to clear up the back years so they can construct the going forward. How COVID plays into this, uh, we've discussed that at the beginning of the call, but it's going to make it even choppier. But it's good to hear that your assessment there, to, to summarise that, that it wasn't, it's not really a major shock like the mid to late 80s. It's not a massive shock, but, and it's just a standard end of cycle differentiation point between where those that have been really managing and reserving well and being more disciplined are, are going to have the dividend and those that are have not been so good and have been lighter and all these things are going to have their chickens slightly coming to home to roost and, and won't be in such a position to play the upswing and, and write more in the upswing. Is that, is it's a very standard that's, sort of cyclical behaviour. That, that's how we see it. And that's certainly been the conversation we've been having at the first January renewals, first of April renewals and, and going forward with our clients generally, I think. But certainly, that's, that's but nothing, but no kind of crisis, no kind of impairments or or mass withdrawals from, from classes are likely in the offing? Don't believe so. Other things, um, the strategic plan with, with Acrisure, you've, you've mentioned some of that. So is it really about you sitting in and bringing that specialist capacity right down to that direct retail platform that you've got, uh, particularly in the US? Yeah, look, I'll, I'll give you an example. We've just launched a white label or labeled cyber product for our actual partners. And we're working with some very smart underwriters who are delivering us the capacity, the products, the technology, apps, all of that stuff to really help us give the best possible product to our client, to help them understand what the exposures are and how to cover those. And that's something that prior to would have been gone through a convoluted system of people to get to that retail broker. And now it's going to be something we're offering directly. Is it going to be for everything? Of course not. I think we believe that there's certain niche products and areas of the market that we can bring directly to bear on our actual partners. And we're going to continue to build on those. And we've got lots of appetite and interest from carriers that want to get involved with us, want access to our network. So that's just a one example, and there'll be more of them. And just to give a bit of flavour of the sort of scale of the whole AcroShore network what sort of premium what sort of gwp is it moving through the whole acrosure next door a network it if prob- you aggregate it, a prob- well, it it changes every day because they keep buying well, it goes up right <laughs> our actual bought over 100 100 brokers last year and over 100 brokers before the year before that and 90 odd brokers the year before that so they've been hugely acquisitive so it changes on a daily basis i think it's in the region of 18 or 19 billion dollars of premium that they currently handle through the network so it's um, sizable so um, when you're approaching uh, you're approaching an underwriter you say well they do want to pay attention because you've got something potentially very meaningful to show to them i think also the, the other part is that actual is predominantly an sme network and it's probably more s than m uh, in, in that and so what you have is you've got the sort of client base that doesn't generally tend to flow through too much into the lloyd's market anymore into the reinsurance market anymore and you're offering those carriers direct access to lovely non-volatile small business that's got an excellent loss ratio 
and not paying too much for the privilege of getting to access that business. So it's very attractive to carriers for sure. But we're going slowly, slowly. We're taking certain little niche segments out first, which we think, well, perhaps cyber is not quite so niche anymore. I think it's going to become very mainstream. But we're picking certain areas, targeted areas, where we think there's better solutions available to the clients rather than the, the current status quo. Obviously, now we're in a bit of a financial crisis, which has been caused by the COVID-19 epidemic. And obviously, the mood music might be that debt-fueled acquisition models are going to be a bit under threat. Um, is there a change in, in the mood on the Acrosure level? Obviously, you do uh, at that level, there's quite a lot of uh, debt on the Acrosure balance sheet. Is it, is it going to be pausing is it, or is it going to sort of or is there plenty of cash? Well, we're, I mean, we're, you know, look, put it this way. We're, we're very happy with the ratio of debt to EBITDA. So much so that we just got upgraded by the rating engines in January. So, and we then refinanced all of our debts in February. Rather good timing, in, just in advance of the COVID crisis. So, we're feeling extremely strong financially as a group. We've got plenty of firepower to go out and make acquisitions. We've got plenty of cash. You know, we generate. We've got industry-leading margins. I think our margins are probably 50% higher than the, the large brokers. They're in the sort of mid to upper 30s. And so, therefore, we've got a lot of free cash flow. So, financially, Actuals is extremely strong and will look to come out of this crisis like a freight train. In terms of M&A right now, clearly, that's going to be somewhat curtailed just because it's you can't get on a plane or can't get in a car or can't get on a train and go and see anyone to go and see if they want to sell their business to you. So, I think they've clearly got some acquisitions in the pipeline, which hopefully they'll close upon. But I imagine the pace of M&A will just slow as a result of just not being able to get out there and see people. But it's got nothing to do with our ability to buy companies and add companies to the business. That continues unabated. And as I said, just having done a refinancing, we're in good shape. Well, great. Thanks so much for your time. Good luck with everything, Jason, and uh, stay safe and healthy. And uh, we'll talk again sometime in the future. I look forward to it, Mark. Thanks very much. You stay safe and healthy too. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>